We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Is your brain regularly hijacked by anxiety? Do you spend hours preoccupied with what if? Can a small upset with your nearest and dearest, like they don't return a text immediately, make you worry there's something deeply wrong with your whole relationship? Perhaps you're falling into the trap of overthinking. My witness today would certainly say yes to all of these questions. Alison Raskin is an author, a screenwriter, podcaster, and sometime YouTuber, and the author of the best-selling book, Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. Alison, you've been battling your own brain since you were four years old. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, people always get a little surprised by that age, but I had something, at least we believe, called pandas, which basically means I had a strep throat infection. And then that activated a pretty serious degree of OCD that came on rather quickly, where my entire personality and behavior changed within a few days or weeks. And I was really lucky that my parents took that seriously and they immediately noticed, hey, this is not normal. This is not the daughter that we have come to know. And they got me into treatment. They put me on medication at four years old, which, you know, in the 94 was not the norm. And I, I'm eternally grateful that they they took it so seriously. But even having all the privilege of having access to mental health help and medication. You know, my life has always been a struggle with my OCD, my anxiety, bouts of depression. And it's just been sort of a theme in my life and something that I've worked really hard to balance. You know, I'm never going to be someone that doesn't have OCD. I'm never going to be someone that doesn't run a little anxious, but I think I've been able to not let it control my entire life anymore and not let it be, you know, the main thing people think of when they think of me. And reading your book is really wonderful for a professional like me because you really get a chance to see inside your brain and see how it works and how you can fall down what I think you call and I would call as well a rabbit hole. You're sort of going along, something will happen and suddenly your brain will go spiralling downwards. So perhaps give us an example of something like that as sort of what for most people would be an everyday kind of problem. And then if you're not careful and before you really started working on yourself would have been a incredible crisis. <laughs> you know, so much has changed in the way that my brain works and, and the, the tentacles that have stayed latched on, if that makes sense. So I think when I was younger, there were things more interpersonally that would really stick with me, you know, where it would be like if I was dating somebody and they did not text me back right away, I would not be able to be present in the moment of my life because I was obsessed with if they were going to text me back, when they were going to text me back, what it represented that they weren't texting me back, both about like our 
individual relationship and my chances at being happy in general, you know, that kind of catastrophizing of, oh, this person doesn't want to be with me, that I'll be alone forever, you know, really taking those big leaps in logic that make it really easy to feel terrible all the time. And then I'd say now I'm at a place where I, I don't do that so much with more generalized anxiety or interpersonal relationships, but I do still fall into the holes when it comes to contamination OCD. So that's where I feel like the stickiness is still really there. And, you know, last night I was at a friend's house for a Seder and the whole time I was there, I was thinking about, well, do I need to shower when I go home or am I clean enough? Or, but I hugged these people and I don't know the last time they showered, but they seem like they probably showered. So I can probably not shower when I get home, but maybe I should shower when I, you know, and, and I'm there engaging and trying to enjoy the Seder. But I'm also having these very obsessive thoughts about like, if I'm clean enough, which is obviously not where I want my mind to be, but unfortunately, is is a bit of my reality. So let's explain exactly what obsessive compulsive disorder is and whether it helped you to be diagnosed with it or was the label a problem? Yeah, I know there's a lot of mixed feelings about diagnoses in the mental health community and just within people. I'm someone where I think that my diagnosis was incredibly helpful because I view my diagnosis as something separate from me. So, you know, there's a lot of talk around like people first language, and I'm someone who will really use specific language where I say I'm someone with OCD versus I'm so OCD. (laughs) And that can sound like a very similar thing. But in reality, what I'm saying is I'm Allison, I'm a full person, and then I have, you know, this disorder. And that really helps me not feel like it is my whole identity. It helps me not feel like I'm just a weirdo who does a lot of weird stuff. Instead, I'm like a fighter who is attempting to live a full life despite kind of having, you know, this like bug on my back that I'm trying to kind of, you know, brush off all the time. And so how would you define obsessive compulsive disorder? So obsessive compulsive disorder is really complex because it manifests very differently for everyone. In order to like have the clinical definition, basically you have a series of obsessions that you then will alleviate with a compulsion. Right. So I will go out to my car and I will say, okay, the last time I drove this car, I went to a movie theater and I think movie theaters are gross. And so the idea of sitting in this car after I sat at a movie theater when I'm now clean is really distressing to me. It's so distressing to me. So then my compulsion will be that I take a Clorox wipe and I wipe down my car seat and then I can feel a relief from the obsession about the contamination. But that's just one subset. So what's interesting about OCD is you'll meet someone with OCD who maybe has like worse hygiene than anyone you've ever met and has no care about, you know, contamination or cleanliness. But they are maybe struggling with something called harm OCD, which is like a subset where you're very worried that you're going to harm yourself or someone else. So if you're in the kitchen and you have a knife, you have these obsessive thoughts that like you're going to stab your partner with the knife. Even though no part of you wants to do that, you can't get rid of that thought. And so 
I think it's really important when we talk about OCD to recognize that like there's the sitcom version that I think we see on TV, which is like, let me turn the light switch on 10 times and let me, you know, straighten the painting. And, and sure, there are definitely people with OCD who have those types of urges and compulsions, but it's a really wide ranging disorder. And it appears for people in such different ways. There's some parts of it that are, I think, harder for people to talk about. You know, there's there's something called, you know, like pedophilia OCD, where people are very worried that they're a pedophile and it is like an all-consuming worry. They're not a pedophile, but their brain is like, but what if, but what if? And like, imagine living with that all day and then it also being something that you feel shame talking about. So it, it's a really complex disorder, but the clinical definition is that there is some sort of obsession and then there is some sort of compulsion that you do to alleviate the distress of the obsession. And your book, Overthinking About You, is particularly about relationship compulsive disorder, isn't it? I'd say it's about, we talk about relationship OCD, which is another subset that we can definitely dive into. But, you know, kind of crafting the book, I, I wanted to touch on like all the different you know, diagnoses I've, I've struggled with, which is really anxiety, OCD, and depression, and how if you're battling with these things on a clinical level or even a subclinical level, that like it can make being in relation with another person a little more tricky. And so my goal with this book was to really kind of look at the intersection between mental health and romantic relationships and sort of like provide some tools for how to make dating less scary because, you know, like we were talking about earlier, if you take on these big thoughts about if someone doesn't text you back, it means that you're a worthless pile of poop. Suddenly dating is a much higher stakes operation than if someone doesn't text you back, you think, oh, whatever, they suck. You know, it's so a sort of like... Or you think they've just been rather busy at work and they haven't got time to text. Exactly. And so when we struggle with these things, our perception of relationships can be so different. And so I really wanted to kind of give some tools for how to be in relation with other people, how to deal with breakups, which I think is a way that can really, you know, be a big blow to our mental health. And and then also sort of prove that even if we have these struggles, it doesn't mean we can't be great partners. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't go after the kind of relationships that we want. And that sometimes in a lot of ways, because we've often been forced to do a lot of work on ourselves, we can actually be really great partners. And what I think is also really interesting is that I think this OCD is a continuum. So when sometimes these are exaggerated versions of what somebody else might be feeling, actually seeing it exaggerated helps them really see what's going on for themselves and they can use the same tools as well. So I think particularly with relational compulsive disorder, there's two types and one is relationship-centred and one is partner-centred. And I think it would be really helpful for people to understand what each one of those means. And perhaps you can tell us if you've ever suffered in that particular way as well. Yeah. So relationship OCD is a real beast and it can really interfere with people's ability to just enjoy and be present in their relationship. And so you kind of have like two themes of thought sometimes. So one is more about like, is this the right relationship? Am I feeling the right amount of love? Is like, is this what love should feel like? You know, there's so many shoulds when it comes to relationship OCD. And I imagine it's, is my partner feeling enough of it as well? 
not right. just do am I feeling enough? it? Do they love me enough? Am I good enough for them? Like, you know, is this, is this how love should feel? And then there's also the partner centered, which can be really exhausting, which is like a constant feeling of like, I don't know if this person's funny enough, or I don't know if I could like look at this person for the next 40 years, like sort of like these things that like, you know, you're with a perfectly wonderful person who brings you joy, but then while you're laughing with them, the back of your brain is going, but is their laugh kind of annoying? You know, like maybe their laugh is like maybe something you actually don't want to be around, you know, like, and it's like, shut up. I love them. But your brain is like, and something about relationship OCD is that it will kind of really only show up in viable relationships. So then you might think back and go, but when I was hooking up with that person who, you know, treated me terribly and was never really around, I didn't think these thoughts. And it's like, well, yeah, because there was no real chance of it being a true intimate relationship. It's really only when this could be something substantial and real that maybe that those thoughts will poke up in an effort to like, quote unquote, protect you. But in reality, they're just getting in the way of your ability to like form a great connection. And you can still form a great connection, even when you're battling with this. A lot of people do. And what what's tricky about relationship OCD is it's like, you don't necessarily want to share that with your partner, right? Mm, good first date conversation, right? isn't it, really? <laughs> or like you can share, I'm having a tough OCD day, but there's a difference between sharing the content of your thoughts, right? Like sharing the content might not necessarily be helpful because it could be really hurtful to your partner to hear that. And that's why like a big theme of the book is the importance of you being your own primary helper when it comes to your mental health. And that with the exclusion of when someone's in crisis, but if you're not in crisis, really it's your responsibility to manage your mental health if you're able to and to make that a priority. And then your partner is there to sort of help you and and provide support, but it's not on them to, you know, appease your worries. Like you really need to learn how to self-soothe and how to understand your own brain. Now that's really important. Can you give us a sort of an examples of before you uh, before you became wise, how you might use your partner to try and soothe your anxieties? So reassurance seeking is a really common form of of OCD, and even just people with anxiety. You know, where you would maybe say to your partner, like, "Do you love me?" And they'd be like, yeah, of course, I'm dating you. We're together. We live together. We're building lives together. But then you'd be like, yeah, but but why do you love me? And then they'll say that it's like, but you think you think that you'll love me forever, you know, but what if you, what about that coworker from work who you said was pretty that one time? What if, she, you know, like you can see how like you're never going to get a satisfying enough answer from your partner. And I remember I was with my ex and and we were going to have to go to like a party or something where where his ex-girlfriend was going to be. Oops. Yes. And I knew that when I was younger, I would have been freaking out. I would have been asking so much reassurance. I would have been destroying myself. I would have been comparing myself to this girl. But instead I said, well, let me look at the evidence. The evidence is that he is no longer with this girl. And instead he is with me. So that suggests that he wants to be with me and doesn't want to be with her. And so I'm going to choose to believe that instead of putting it on him to prove that to me, if that makes sense. That's absolutely perfect. And how did the party go? It was good. I mean, later, they, later that relationship, you know, was 
he walked out on me. But at the time that went well. <laughs> and did you, com- did you compare yourself or were you able to get past that? I mean, here's the thing is like, I don't think we can stop the thought. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to not even have the thought of like, oh, this girl's prettier than me. Or, you know, like maybe one day, but to me, it's not about stopping that initial thought because we can't control our thoughts. It's not giving power to the thought. It's not then letting that affect my self-esteem, letting that affect my relationship, letting that be something that I ruminate on. It's being able to say like, oh, okay, this girl maybe looks the way I wish that I looked, but guess what? I have a ton of other things to offer. I really like this thing about myself. I love this thing about myself. Our connection is something that I don't think that they ever had. You know, like the thing about switching to being kind to yourself in your brain is that you can't just start like saying things that you're not going to (laughs) believe, if that makes sense. You can't say I'm the most gorgeous person in the whole wide world because, you know, although it might actually be true in your case, you're not going to believe it, are you? Right. And so when I was really making that transition from talking to myself, like I hated myself, which is kind of how I grew up talking to myself. The first step that I took that I think is really important wasn't so much forcing positive thoughts. It was eliminating negative ones. So like I used to make a lot of self-deprecating jokes. And then I realized that like, oh, I'm believing these jokes. So a first step for me was to stop saying negative things about myself out loud. Good first step. Yeah, because that's something you can control, right? Like we can't control our thoughts. We can't control what's going to pop into our head, but we can control what we say out loud. And so making that deliberate decision to like, if I looked in the mirror and I didn't like what I was wearing, to just try a different outfit instead of being like, oh, I'm disgusting, (laughs) you know? And then your brain starts to realize, hey, we're, we're talking about ourselves a little differently. And suddenly those really mean thoughts kind of aren't as loud anymore because you're also then starting to incorporate some more positive thoughts of like, I I started to even just say things that like as a woman, and I think as people socialize as female feel like we've been taught not to say nice things about ourselves in a way. So I started to like do things where if I thought I looked good and I was like wearing a little hat in a store, I would be like, I look adorable which is like something I never would have said growing up because that's like arrogant or that, you know, like we're sort of like conditioned to say like, oh, this look like I look fat or like, but instead I started to say things like, this is so cute, you know? And it just sort of like changed the way I was talking to myself out loud and then the way I was talking to myself internally. And really the only way that I was able to change how I was in relationship to other people, both romantically and you know, family, friends, was by changing my relationship with myself. That's really exciting because that's something that you can do without another person. And so maybe you're not ready to be in a romantic relationship right now, but that first step can be like really focusing and nurturing the relationship you have with yourself. So you have some steps, which I think are really good. I'm going to take you through them. There's three steps. The first one is to notice Tell me about noticing. Yeah. So this is sort of like if you're feeling, you know, some anxiety and you really need to kind of calm yourself back down. And so a way to notice is like, what am I feeling in my body? And people really experience anxiety in totally different ways. For me, I often feel it kind of in my chest. 
Whereas other people might feel it, you know, in their stomach, or you might notice that you're, you know, I'll do this too. You've got it in your fingers. Right. You can't like keep your leg still. is, yeah, your leg is jittering up and down. So really in your body, like where are you feeling this anxious tension? And I think it's also useful to actually name it as anxiety because it could actually be fear or it could be boredom or it could be sadness. It might be something else. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be panic. And there's a difference between anxiety and panic. So I think it's really helpful to actually name it like that. Notice it and name it. Then the second one is labelling. And this is the most beautiful idea. I really love this one. Thoughts do not equal facts. So tell us about that. Yeah. So like we were talking about, like, you know, you can't control what you think necessarily, but you can control if you believe it. (laughs) So like, you know, I might think, okay, let's say, like, take a breakup example, because I think we try to tell ourselves a lot of untrue things when we're going through a breakup, right? So a thought might be, I will never love anyone as much as I loved so-and-so. And then you hear that in your brain, you go, well, that's true. I'll never find love again like this. But then you take a step back and you go, well, how could I possibly know that? I haven't lived my life. That's just a thought. That's not a fact. That's a perhaps attempt at a prediction, but it's not provable. It's not real. But a fact would be, I loved so-and-so so much and I'm going to miss them right? Like that's different than and I will never find love again. <laughs> so what about something like he left me because of my OCD? Now, is that a fact or is that a thought? Well, it's a fact if they told you that, you know, sometimes people give you explicit reasons, but if you weren't given that explicit reason, then that's just a thought, right? That's just you trying to fill in a hole that, that you'll never be able to. And is it actually a fact? Because you can't actually see inside his head. You don't know that, you know, it might be one of a whole range of things and actually that uh, the problem might be something else. But, you know, he sort of knows that you'll accept that one, whereas it might also be about him. It might be his anxiety or his attachment issues. So I really want to question, actually, if it is a fact. I think it, it might be a belief, but I don't know if it's necessarily a fact. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to ever, you know, especially when you're left with little explanation or what appears to be suddenly. As I alluded to, I, I went through something pretty traumatic when I was writing the book, which I was engaged and my fiance walked out on me like one random night with like no explanation other than, you know, something is missing. And so that was a real opportunity for me to try to fill in what that something was, right? Because I don't have any guidelines. I don't have like any hints. It's just something. And so my brain could go to all of the things that I hate about myself, right? Which would be, he's leaving me because I have OCD or because I'm not pretty enough or because I don't know how to cook or, you know, like anything that I have insecurities about, I could then choose to fill that in. But the thing that I had to do was I had to tell myself, how would I know if that's right? (laughs) Like, I'm never going to know why he left. I can speculate, But what is that speculation doing other than hurting me by pointing out things that I perceive to be flaws? And so part of that healing journey was really saying, I have to be okay with not knowing because I will never know. 
And the process of trying to figure it out is only going to be harmful. And back to the labeling, most, in fact, everything you said were thoughts, beliefs. Mm -hmm. They were not facts. I mean, the fact was he left you on Monday night at 9.30. That's a fact, isn't it? Right. (laughs) Um, And I really think that a lot of the time it would really be useful if we just wrote down these sentences and we divided them into thoughts and facts. And sometimes there's a thought and a fact sort of mixed in together and dividing them out is probably better. And even what he says, that's not necessarily a fact. He says, you know, I'm leaving because, give me something he said that he was leaving because. He just said something was missing and he, but like someone could say, I'm leaving because we want different things, right? Like that's a typical kind of answer. And So even then would be, the fact would be, he thinks we want different things mm-hmm. rather than we want different things because you don't really know what he wants. Does he, right. 100%, does he 100% know what you want? You know, can he actually see definitely in your in your head? It's his opinion is that we wanted different things. The facts are much much smaller than the thoughts, the number, and I think it really helps to label them correctly. And then we come to the third part, which is grounding back to this moment. Now, that, this sounds terribly important. So tell me about it. So this is kind of like a common technique, you know, for when people are feeling anxious and need to reconnect. You know, it's sort of like there's different ways to do it. I think a lot of people suggest like breathing techniques to sort of just like bring your body back to baseline, having your feet on the floor, like connect with the room, be in the moment, you know, because with an anxious mind, it's so easy to be detached from what's actually happening. But just like reminding yourself where you are, you know, checking in with your body, sort of doing a full body scan, you know, really be grounded, taking some deep breaths. I think that this kind of body work, you have to figure out what works best for you. You know, there are going to be people who prefer to do like a three second in breath, four second holds, five seconds out, you know, like people figure out like what type of breathing works for them. Other people will even do in more extreme moments. Like I know some people will put their face in ice sort of just to bring them back to the moment, reconnect with the present instead of where their brain is going. But yeah, there's some kind of like some tips and tricks to just sort of like bring you back to the now. And do you try and find what I might call the animating spark behind this whole triggered event. Let me explain by that. So let's say you're feeling all these feelings, you've worked out that you're feeling anxious, you've separated the thoughts and the facts, you've grounded yourself in. My thinking generally is people don't just have an anxiety for no reason at all. It might not be such a huge reason as they actually immediately leap on. Is it worth trying to find out what the small anxiety that is overwhelming, or is that really a problem if you have OCD? So I actually kind of, I disagree a little bit with you as someone who's had an anxiety disorder for pretty much their whole life. A big change happened when I decided I don't need to figure out why I'm feeling anxious because sometimes my body just runs anxious and my body will just have the physiological reaction of anxiety, but nothing is wrong. So, you know, obviously sometimes it's like I have four deadlines, I got a final in school, I got all these things, like it's obvious why you're anxious. But sometimes your body is just doing what it's used to doing. And you can actually kind of do more harm, in my experience, by trying to find a why. 
because then you'll start to pick things apart where just sometimes if there's nothing really obvious and and you kind of do a quick scan and you're like, I'm taking care of everything. You know, I, I've paid my bills. I'm on track with work. My friendships and relationships are at a good place to just be able to say, I'm just having an anxious day. And it's kind of, I decide to kind of treat it like a cold where I'm like, I just kind of got to wait this out. Maybe give myself a little more self-love, maybe take things a little easier, but I don't need to go digging and investigating and try to figure out what there is to fix because a lot of times there's nothing. (laughs) So accept the anxiety rather than try and solve it is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, obviously if there's a glaring issue, that's different. But if, like I said, if there's nothing that's obvious, I think just saying, oh, I'm just feeling anxious. I'm having an anxious day. It's just my body's response to the way that I'm wired, but I'm going to kind of just power through it has been so helpful to me. What else has helped you? I think, again, changing the way that I talk to myself, focusing on the things that I like, really figuring out why it's nice to be with myself, you know, like what I bring to the table, even just like allowing moments of having fun with myself, like allowing those moments when you're driving in the car and you're listening to your music and you're just having a good time. And then I also think just allowing for there to be different versions of my life that I enjoy. So I think we can get really attached to, I need this to happen and I need this to happen. And I need this to happen. And those things can be different for everyone. For some people, it might be, I need to be married by 28 or I need to get this promotion or I need to buy this house. And it could be like, if I don't get those specific things, then I will be miserable. And I think one of the things that my broken engagement really showed me was it's possible to be happy and fulfilled in so many different versions of your life. You know, like the the external situations can change and we are way more adaptable than we think that we are. And so if things don't go exactly according to plan, we can pivot. And it doesn't mean that it has to be second best or like, you know, a settling. It's just a pivot. And we can find just as much happiness and fulfillment in those pivots as we can with the original plan. And this was a, a big breakup, wasn't it? You were engaged to be married and sort of, so, you know, everybody in your whole life actually knew all about this. My whole life, my whole career. Yeah. Cause I'm a, I, you know, I'm a public figure. So I, he was in my content. I talked about him all the time. He was in the first draft of the book as my fiance. I had to go back and rewrite it. It was, it was dramatic. <laughs> so what do you think you learned that you're going to carry forward from this experience? One thing I learned is that life is really unpredictable. And when we have anxiety, we love control because control makes us feel safe. And a thing that I learned is that I can't control really what happens, but I can be okay. Like, you know, like you can have the rug ripped out from under you, but if you have a good sense of self and you have a support system and you have some coping skills, you can get through it. And that in this way, I now like have this different view of life where I'm like, well, who knows what will happen, you know, but it's not as scary because and I'll deal with it like I can, you know, I can handle it. And then I think another big thing was that experience would have made it really easy for me to not trust other people. I mean, as much as painful as it was to just like lose this person and this future, you know, it was so alarming that I could have not known what was going on in his head. 
that like to be so close to someone, to be living with them, to be planning a wedding and for them to just be keeping so much from you. Right. And so one takeaway from that is like, oh, I should never trust again. People aren't trustworthy. You can never truly know someone. I should put up a wall. But what I decided was I didn't want to live a life where I didn't trust other people. I would rather be quote unquote made a fool or be duped again than close myself off from true intimacy. And so I sort of had to make a decision where it was like, well, you know, I'm engaged again, um, not to say to a new person who's absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And, you know, I could easily be like, well, he could leave at any moment and I could be worried about that all day long. Or I could just say, I'm going to choose to believe that this will work out. And if it doesn't work out, future Allison will deal with that because I don't want to live in a world where I don't trust because it's not, it would be detrimental to me. I would only be hurting myself. And you ask a really good question in the book that actually you had never really thought about before you started writing the book, which is, why do I crave a life partner so badly? How did that question come about and how did that change you? So I'm someone who's always wanted to be in relationship. Like I was boy crazy growing up, you know, all through my 20s, I was dating to marry. It was like, and I think it was really this sense that you know, growing up mentally ill, there's this idea that like, I want to be normal and I want to be accepted and I want to be loved. And obviously having a partner is a way to prove all of those things to yourself. I also think I'm someone who just enjoys partnership. Like I think partnership is a lifestyle choice and it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. I kind of love, love having a buddy. That's something that I think really enhances my life. But yeah, I think it was this idea of like, that will prove that I'm not broken. That will prove that I'm good enough, you know? And having to really leave that behind and instead focus on, I am good enough. I'm good enough on my own. I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. But instead, this isn't something that I need. This is something that I want. And I deserve to go after what I want. It was a really helpful reframe. And so how did you tell your new fiancé when you were dating about your OCD? Because that must have been a difficult conversation. I have never really had a hard time talking about my OCD for whatever reason. I think a lot of people feel a lot of shame around it, which makes total sense. But part of my personality is that I'm an open book and that I sort of just talk. For me, honestly, it was learning how to not overly share. So I think in the past, when I was younger, I would share too much up top in this like kind of like word vomit sense of like, let me lay it all out there so that you'll either accept me or reject me and we can move on. And I had to learn how to share from a place of like need to know basis, like we can get to know each other over time. I don't need to tell you things that are not super relevant to who I am today. But I also have the advantage of, you know, if you Google me, there's articles about it, so... It's a little different, but I, I do think a really helpful way to talk about, you know, a mental health diagnosis is to talk about it from a place of, I'm just sharing this information with you because I want to get to know you and I want to let you in, but this is my thing that I'm taking care of. And this is a thing that I've been dealing with, but I've been working on it for however many years, I'm in therapy, I'm on medication, I'm handling it instead of disclosing it like, and I have this thing. And now if we're together, it will be your thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> 
And you mentioned medication there. What's your opinion on medication? I think my opinion on medication has changed and fluctuated throughout the years. At this point, having almost completed my graduate degree in psychology, I'm at a place where I think meds are a really wonderful resource for the people they work for. I think I used to think that meds worked for everyone, and I don't think that's true anymore. I think they're more effective for some people than other people. I also think that it's a cost-benefit when it comes to side effects. But for me personally, I'm someone who's really lucky that meds are effective, and they're something that I, I plan to be on you know, for the rest of my life, unless there's some sort of new, you know, there's a lot of new stuff coming out where like sometimes the idea being that like maybe you'd have some one-time treatment that would help you long-term. But at this point where everything is in the research and the science, I, I plan to be on my daily medication until I die. <laughs> and how are you doing with the question, where does understandable concerns end and where does OCD begin? That's always really hard, right? Because the thing about contamination OCD is like, hygiene does kind of matter, right? Especially when we were going through the pandemic and we were at the early stages where, you know, it was like we didn't know how the how it spread. And so I think it's really about finding balance and how much are your compulsions and fears interfering with the life that you want to be leading. So something that really helped me when I was in exposure and response therapy last year was this idea of like a values-based approach to my OCD. So determining, is this compulsion going to get in the way of doing something that's important for me? Or is it just me wiping down my phone for the fifth time, but like, who really cares? It took one second. It doesn't really matter. Or can I not do something that I want to do because of my OCD? Maybe that's a time to really fight it. And so really thinking about what you value can be a really helpful way. So like first, if someone's struggling with social anxiety, this could work for that too, right? Like it's like, oh, this huge holiday party where I don't know anyone. No one's going to know if I go or not. It's making me so anxious. Maybe I'm just not going to go, but that it's one of your bestest friend's birthday parties where there's only going to be 15 people and they would really notice if you didn't come and it would be really meaningful to them if you came. That's an example where maybe pushing through that discomfort is worth it because you value that friendship. So it's a case of choosing your battles really, isn't it? Yeah, I really like that approach and I and it's sort of a... Uh, like a harm reduction approach to your mental health instead of feeling like I have to fight everything all of the time and be in constant distress to be better constantly. It's like, I'm going to pick my battles. I'm going to try to, you know, expend my energy when I have it. Some days I won't have the energy to fight. Some days I really will. And then taking advantage of those days when you have that energy. So we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. There are all sorts of ways of participating in The Meaningful Life. 
if you enjoy this particular edition, please do leave a review or the, the fact that you like it, or you can send us in a letter and you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where if you go all the way down, you'll find a form that you can fill in and send us a letter. And uh, I will uh, see if I can find an expert that will be suitable to talk to you about it. And I hope that uh, Alison is going to be able to help us with this one. The letter comes from a woman. When something goes wrong, I immediately think, how did I mess up? There must be something I did wrong, like touch handrails and get COVID. If someone is upset at work, I immediately start mentally scanning back through our last few interactions. Face-to-face emails, could they have heard chatting in the kitchen and misinterpret something, in order to double-check it's not about me. If my partner is down, then it must be something I did, or more likely didn't do. I know it goes back to my childhood. I was an only child, and my mother was depressed a lot of the time. I would alternate between trying to be overhelpful and keeping out of her way. Neither worked. But I suppose just let me rest was better than where have you been? Nobody cares. Everybody is so selfish. I hope you get the picture. Knowing where the pattern started sort of helps. At least I don't think I'm going crazy. But it doesn't stop the spiral down. Intellectually, I know I can't control everything. People get COVID. The company will not win every bid we make. My husband is responsible for his own feelings. But deep down, I still feel guilty and other feelings I can't really name. This is such a tough one. And I feel, you know, so much empathy for people in this kind of position. And it is interesting, right? Where it's like, I can pinpoint why I am this way, but sometimes insight alone isn't enough to solve the problem. So where my head goes, it's kind of two places. The first is something that really helped me, which was because I used to, you know, really worry about if I was a good person, right? And that can kind of be tied to the OCD of it all. Like, am I a bad person? Am I a good person? Is this okay? Is that okay? You know, and something I had to do for myself was instead of trying to be other people's version of a good person, which is going to vary person to person, right? So it's kind of impossible thing to do. I decided what are my standards for being a good person, right? Like how do I want to act? How do I want people to treat me? And then can I proceed as such, right? So like, do I say hello when I enter a store and goodbye when I leave a store and like, thank you and reply to my friends and support my friend, you know, and sort of like figure out what is my version of the type of person that I want to be? And then that's the only standard I'm holding myself to instead of trying to figure out what other people want, because you can't really do that. And so then at the end of the day, you can go, well, you know, maybe this person got mad at me, or maybe I think they might be mad at me. But then I go back and I say, well, I didn't do anything that broke my standard of what it is to be quote unquote, good, you know, whatever that means to you or kind. I think kind is better than good in a lot of ways because good is so nefarious. And so being able to say, well, I didn't say anything unkind to them. I, I didn't behave in a way that I, I would deem inappropriate. And so I can't be in control of if this other person is going to deem something I did those things because I'm only working off of my standards. <laughs> so that's always been really helpful for me. And then I think the other big thing is just really sitting with yourself and saying, obviously, I care about showing up for people. I care about being a good worker. I care about being a good partner. I care about being a responsible member of the community. 
And I think it's great to have all those goals. I think it's really important for us to have purpose in life. But to be able to say, when I go down these spirals, when I obsess that I'm the problem, that I'm causing all these issues, I'm taking away energy from my ability to be those things. You know, if your partner is in a mood and then you're freaking out about if they're in a mood or not, you know, maybe you're then making it worse because you're anxious and you're needing reassurance and you're in a funk. But if you can just say, like you said beautifully in the letter, it's their responsibility, then you can say, okay, I'm going to let them deal with their feelings. I'm going to have the energy now to like make us dinner. You know, like it allows you to like feed energy back into yourself so that you can be all of those things that you want to be because you're not caught up in the rumination as much. And what I often talk about is working out the difference between your concerns, what is in your zone of concern and what's in your zone of control. So what Mm -hmm. would be in my zone of concern would be that my partner's in a blue funk. What's in my zone of control? Well, you know, I'm not the entertainment officer. I don't have to leap up and down and wave my knickers in the air to entertain him or get him out of his funk. But, you know, I can control what I'm going to do. And as you say, I can make the dinner. Or I can control myself with not saying, do you want to talk about it 17 times? Mm -hmm. So what's under my zone of control is my behavior, what I say, what's in my zone of concern, how my partner is feeling. And I think that helps a lot for me. Another big thing was reconceptualizing myself as someone who makes mistakes. Ah, And because if you think of yourself as someone who makes mistakes, that when you make a mistake, you're not then confronted with, oh my God, this is a total collapse of my sense of self and I'm a big mess up. Instead, you're able to go, oh, it makes sense. I made a mistake because I'm someone who makes mistakes because we all make mistakes. And if it's just a mistake, you can normally fix it or you can apologize for it. But if actually you're a complete disaster, then you're probably just going to get defensive rather than actually be able to do anything productive about it as well. So I love that idea. And then all you can do is say, I'm just going to try not to make this exact same mistake again. I'll probably make a different mistake, but I can learn from this one. What can I take away from it to move forward? And then I'll make another one. But that's life. That's, that's being a person. And are you able to just say, you know, that's the way the universe has turned out and something better will be coming up around the corner? Or is that too zen for you these days? <sighs> I, yeah, I mean, I, a manifestation doesn't necessarily fit right with me because I, I think that it ignores a lot of systems of oppression and it places the responsibility on the individual to fix everything when in reality the society is, is failing people. But I do think that the reminder that the way that you're feeling will not last forever is very helpful of like, you know, I've had enough ups and downs in my life where when I'm in a down, I can successfully believe that it won't be this way always. And that is so powerful to say, yeah, I feel like terrible right now, but I know I'm going to experience joy again. I know I'm going to laugh again. I know I'm going to play with my dogs in five minutes, like just like remembering that this moment won't last. Well, I have to say thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I think my life's made meaningful through my relationships with the people that I love. I'm a 
fiance, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, I'm a dog mom. And those all bring so much meaning. And then I also think the work that I do and my mental health advocacy has given me a lot of purpose and fulfillment as well. Well, there's so many other things that I want to talk to Alison about. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment. But if you want to hear the rest of the conversation, you need to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. We're going to be talking about how to keep going. You know, whether it's looking for love or changing or growing, it's very easy just to sort of think, ugh, and uh, to retreat. But how do you keep going? You know, how do you keep going after you've had that terrible breakup so that you go on and you find a better relationship? Well, we'll be discussing that in the bonus material. And if you want to hear that, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get access to all of the extra material, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.